Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. COVID is still lingering, monkeypox is spreading, and polio is re-emerging in wastewater. Is it time to panic or is this just our new normal? To give us some perspective, we're talking to Dr. Amy Nunn, the executive director of the Rhode Island Public Health Institute. That's after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Amy Nunn, Executive Director of the Rhode Island Public Health Institute. Thank you for joining us, doctor. Thanks for having me. So a lot of students, including my oldest son, Ned, are about to head off to college for the first time in a few days. How much of a factor will COVID-19 be for students this year, including those in K through 12? Well, I think that we're all used to COVID at this point. I don't anticipate a lot of changes. You know, we do expect that there'll be a new booster vaccine coming out, but I don't think that there will be too many changes with schools and universities with respect to COVID. You know, both Governor Dan McKee and Ashley Kalis, the Republican candidate for governor, have tested positive for COVID-19 recently. So what does that tell you? I think COVID is an equal opportunity offender. Most of us have had it by Bipartisan, now. yeah. <laughs> Bipartisan. I've had COVID. You know, I avoided it for two and a half years. And the moment I arrived in Europe during a surge, my entire family contracted COVID, even though we were masking. So I think it's just going to become increasingly more normal. I'm frankly surprised that the gov- ha- governor hasn't had it yet, given yeah. how much he interacts with people. Yeah, all the meet- meeting and greeting and shaking hands and all that. The other day, the comedian Amy Schumer was at Foxwoods, and she joked that we're all so depressed and burned out about the pandemic that now there's a disease called monkeypox, and no one gives a damn. It's like, I can't even deal with that. So what is monkeypox, and how big a threat is it? Well, monkeypox is something that's been with us really since the late 50s or early 1960s and first emerged as a virus that affected people who um, had interacted with rodents in the Congo and in Western Africa. And um, the epidemic we're facing now is pretty different than any other monkeypox outbreak that we've ever seen. 
currently most of the infections, about 99.9% of infections are among men who have sex with men. And it presents like blisters. It's a pox virus and it can be very painful. It's uh, rarely fatal, but it can be painful and can cause a lot of um, inflammation and can cause um, damage to the organs, although that's pretty rare. Yeah. Do you have any sense of how widespread it is here in Rhode Island? I think as of this morning, we had about 42 cases um, had been diagnosed in the state. We've seen a little bit of a plateauing in the rate of infection in the last couple of weeks as the state and clinics like ours, Open Door Health, have really begun mass vaccination campaigns. So I really think the key is bending the curve early before we have more widespread transmission. So is monkeypox a sexually transmitted disease? I mean, do condoms provide protection? That's a great question, and the short answer is we're not really sure. We think that monkeypox is generally spread through skin-to-skin contact. It has been found in semen, although we're the jury uh, and verdict is still not back about whether or not it is actually sexually transmitted. We know that it's certainly sexually associated And condoms, while they may protect us from some sexually transmitted infections, may not prevent monkeypox because of a lot of skin-to-skin contact that may still happen while you're wearing a condom. I remember you telling me that Rhode Island reported 73 new cases of HIV in 2019, and that was down from 115 in 2010. Where do we stand now? Our rates uh, are pretty low, uh, around the same as they've been. You know, what's interesting is that our HIV rates have plateaued in the state, even as our rates of other sexually transmitted infections have risen. I think one reason is that HIV can be controlled. So when people take one pill once a day, that dramatically reduces the chances that they transmit HIV to other people. So most people who are infected with HIV in Rhode Island know it and are already receiving treatment. I think the reason The other STI rates have gone up is because of ubiquitous use of online hookup apps. I'm referring to things like Grindr, Scruff. That can expedite the way that people meet their partners. We don't discourage it at Open Door Health, which is the clinic that we run. We're sex positive, but we encourage people who may use those apps to frequently get tested for STIs and to come in to get screened. I remember doing a Q&A with you back in March 2020 when you were just launching Open Door Health. Tell us uh, what that is and how it's going now. So Open Door Health is the state's first and only LGBTQ clinic. We opened at a crazy time at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. That was a a total coincidence. We started small, and right now we have about 4,000 patients. So we're still relatively small, but have grown a lot in the last few years. Yeah, I remember you saying you'd hope to serve 3,000 to 5,000 people a year. So you're right on target. We are right on target, and we're busting at the seams. So we'll be hopefully building a new building in coming um, months and years. And you have an idea of where you want to land, I mean, in the city, in Providence? We would love to be in Providence, and we would love to be on a bus line. The most need would certainly be on the west and south sides of Providence. So that's where we would love to be. Earlier this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci announced he's going to step down as President Biden's top medical advisor and director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. What have you thought of his tenure? I think he's amazing. I think he's an extraordinary public servant, and I hold him in the highest regard. I think that he had an uphill battle during the Trump administration when He was discouraged from promoting the best scientific evidence, and he 
served anyway against all odds and triumphed. I, I think he also really knew how to work well with the media. He's done a few interviews, yeah. He's done a few interviews. Um, and I was a fan before all of this because my background is in HIV, and he's been there from the beginning. Right. He withstood a lot of criticism in the beginning when our our federal response to the HIV epidemic was really lacking. And I think that it was his ability to work with community members that really helped propel the federal AIDS response forward when a lot of gay men were dying of AIDS-related causes in the 80s and 90s. I covered when Dr. Fauci spoke at Roger Williams University for the graduation in May. He said, differences of opinion or ideology are sometimes propped up by deliberate distortions of reality to the point of fabrications, conspiracy theories, and outright lies. As a public health expert, do you see a lot of misinformation these days? We do, and that's why I'm here today, because I believe that as scientists, I'm a scientist by training. It's part of our public health duty to go beyond just writing articles, but really work on disseminating the most important public health information in ways that people can consume. Yeah, what can people do to ensure they're getting solid information about public health issues and not conspiracy theories? I think people should be mindful of the media that they consume, really make sure it's from trusted sources that do fact-checking. I support independent journalism. I pay for my subscriptions to the New York Times, to the Boston Globe, to Boston the Providence Globe, Journal. To you know, I discourage people from watching Fox News because I think they perpetuate fear and um, fear mongering. And it can't be easy to be a public health expert these days. I mean, Dr. Fauci and his family received death threats and they required security. What does that tell you? Well, I've received similar threats about providing services to transgender persons. And I recently, yeah. Frequently. Yeah. And I just ignore all of it. But to be honest, that deep-seated homophobia propels me forward because I know that we have a long way to go if we have people in our society that can't be kind to one another. And we are glad to take care of the people that experience um, that discrimination and that type of oppression. It makes our work more rich and meaningful. You know, my mother had polio but survived, and it was something I, I never worried about because I got a vaccine. I saw where a 20-year-old man from Rockland County, New York, was just diagnosed with polio and wastewater testing has shown that it's in New York City and London. How can that be? So that was new, and everyone was shocked about it. Until recently, most of the remaining polio cases in the world were concentrated in pockets of Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nigeria, where there's been religious opposition to mass vaccination campaigns. So it, it's sad to see that that's um, affecting the United States, but all the more reason to think about how globally interconnected we are. I mean, COVID has taught us that. Yeah, do you see a lot of anti-vaccination sentiment out there? I mean, just in relation to COVID, but other, other diseases too? Yes, I, I, I'm surprised how it has been so commonplace, even among people with relatively high educational attainment. Customarily, vaccination reservations or, or you know hesitation has been among people with low educational attainment. So I see you've been busy since we last talked in 2021 in partnership with 40 institutions. You launched Nourish RI. Tell us about that. So that's a coalition of concerned citizens and organizations and even grocers who are concerned about food insecurity in our state. And we together have been lobbying for a program that doubles the value of SNAP. It was formerly known as food stamps when people buy fresh fruits and vegetables. 
So what does that mean? When people buy fruits and vegetables, $1 is worth $2 when they use their EBT card. And I remember there'd been a proposal for a tax on sugary beverages that would have funded a discount on fruits and vegetables for those in the SNAP program. What happened to that? So that was not approved. We believe that we had the legislative votes to pass that, and Governor McKee announced that he would veto it if the legislature were to pass it. So it did not make it off the floor, although I'm extremely interested in coming back for that piece of the legislation. So while that was not approved, the legislature did approve the SNAP incentives that it would have funded, and that was funded with ARPA dollars. Oh, that came with the ARPA, federal money. So that's one of those things that was a little bit buried in the budget. There were so many things that were public health triumphs included in the budget this year that haven't been really um, promoted or celebrated. That's one of them. What would your message to Governor McKee be about that sugary drink tax? We have among the highest rates of pediatric obesity in the country. That's really being driven by high rates of pediatric obesity among our Latinx children. The easiest and most cost-effective way to address this is to reduce unnecessary consumption of sugar, and we should consider the sugary drinks tax in the future. And where does the opposition to that proposal come from? from the The beverage industry. We had a small grant and a lot of elbow grease and community support for our work. The beverage industry spent $1.5 million on advertising and lobbying to try to destroy the coalition and destroy the movement. Oh, I remember there were radio ads, right? Absolutely. And personal attacks, you know, um, they're also on the list. On you? Yes, and also uh, with our chief medical officer, Dr. Chan. But we stand by our position on the sugary drinks tax and hopeful that it can become a reality in the future here. So we've had so many public health issues to deal with, but is there a public health uh, matter that you know of that's not on the radar that not many people are talking about right now? I think one thing that's often neglected is the health and wellness of our, of our Latinx community. Rhode Island has a very large Latinx population, and it's quite diverse. So we have a lot of Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Guatemalans, and Colombians. My husband's Colombian, so my children are Latino, so that's an issue near and dear to my heart. The health and education issues um, are really interlinked, but they're not often talked about explicitly. As I mentioned, the state of child health for our Latinx um, community is quite grave. It's not discussed publicly. But I think we need to elevate the conversation around um, child health for Latinx children in our state. Providence is 50% Latino. And you almost wouldn't know based on our public health and policy conversations. And I think that deserves a lot more mention. Good point. Good point. Dr. Nunn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe, Rhode Island. Ballads Beach Resort on Black Island has appealed the decision to suspend its liquor and entertainment license for two weeks. The decision by local officials comes after rowdy behavior and fights that spilled onto the Black Island ferry. Alexa Gagas and Carlos Munoz were there for the hearing. And with the primaries only a few weeks away, our political columnist Dan McGowan gives us five toss-up races to watch in Rhode Island. And lanternflies might look cool, but they can damage crops and even bite people. If you see any, you should report them and then squish them. Brian Amaral has more on the advice from Rhode Island's Department of Environmental Management. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. 
Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.